Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman and our final episode for season three. Before we get underway, I want to pay an enormous thanks to Hachette Publishing and all the extraordinary team members there who have worked with us to not only make this season possible, but to make it as interesting and eye-opening as it has been. Astrid and I have had an absolute ball. Today's episode is, of course, no exception. Astrid and I are speaking to Professor Glyn Davis. He's the Chief Executive of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which works to end intergenerational poverty. He also holds a chair in political science at the Australian National University and is a visiting professor elsewhere and was previously Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. But today we are speaking to him about his new book, which is called On Life's Lottery and is part of the Hachette On series. Glyn makes the point that birth is a throw of the dice. And it's a throw of the dice that has consequences that last a lifetime. And while many of us like to think of Australia as the land of a fair go and equal opportunity and a place of choice, that's not always true. That behind this kind of facade of meritocracy is this uncomfortable truth that a lot of our lives are predetermined by the circumstances into which we're born. Most importantly in this book, Glyn asks whether or not we can end intergenerational poverty and how we might do that. I hope you enjoy mine and Astrid's conversation with Glyn Davies. Glyn Davies, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. Thank you so much for being with us. The statistics on poverty in Australia are alarming. For those who are listening right now who perhaps aren't familiar with the situation in this country. Could you give us a bit of an overview? With pleasure. Of course, all statistics can be contested and how you measure poverty changes from country to country. But we've got a long-standing tradition here around poverty being half of the average weekly earnings. If a family is trying to live on half of the average, it's, it's in poverty and that can range down to extreme poverty. And the Melbourne Institute has a longitudinal survey that goes back more than a generation. So we've got a pretty fair sense of of how this changes. And it suggests that about 13% of Australians live in poverty. And of that 13%, that's 3.2 million people. That's a lot of people. And 750,000 of them are children. So that promise all those decades ago that no child would live in poverty uh, turns out not to have been fulfilled, put it mildly. Glenn, I really enjoyed On Life's Lottery, your essay, And I confess, I have a self-interested question. I know your history in tertiary education in Australia. I currently teach Mm -hmm. at RMIT University, Uh and I'm interested in your thoughts about the link between poverty and education and the idea of poverty and how education can be used to move a family and move a person onto a different trajectory. Thank you very much and great 
that you're teaching at RMIT. I think teaching is one of life's great privileges and I, I enjoyed thoroughly my time in the classroom. It's just such a fun thing to do with young people who, are, who care and are interested and are passionate. It's just worth going to work every day for it. Without doubt, there's a really strong link. And indeed, if you talk to most boomers, they'll tell you that education is the single thing that took them from a very modest background into a much more wealthy. The effect of that, of course, became less clear as more people got tertiary education. So when I went to university, like a lifetime ago, only about 3% of Australians studied, only about 7% of Australians had a degree. And we're now at the point where 40% or more of young Australians are studying, and that means a third of the country nearly has qualification. So not surprisingly, the benefit of a university degree isn't as markedly strong as it was. But that's irrelevant. Everything tells us that education is the way out of poverty for most people. And in truth, it's not tertiary education, it's school education, it's finishing school, and in some cases it's getting through preschool. Poverty is marked by low levels of education. I mean, low levels of education mean low levels of employment and you just can see the way the path goes out. So everything we can invest in helping people who are living with disadvantage get to preschool, get into school, get through school and move into that first job or into further study will improve their chances of breaking out of the cycle of disadvantage. It's not foolproof but it's the single best mechanism we have. So investment into education is also investment into social mobility and social equity, and that's why it's a really important thing. And although I'm passionate about universities, as are you, I think we do need to acknowledge that the real need for those living in the most disadvantaged communities is around preschool and schooling. You mentioned preschool a couple of times, and I imagine the average person whose background isn't in education would find that an interesting marker of whether or not we can lift people out of poverty. What makes early childhood education so important? So there are communities that report that one in three children in that community wasn't ready for school when they arrived. That is, they didn't have the basic skills that we now expect a five-year-old to have, which means they started school behind. And if you start school behind, the chances are that pattern will be continued through your life. So this is the scary thing. If you're not investing in kids pre-five, you're already disadvantaging them. And, you know, it's a, a little scary that the experts in the field, and I am not, let me stress that, but the experts in the field say that at 18 months they can pick up all of the markers of potential disadvantage and they go from everything from language acquisition to curiosity to a body mass. All of those things are markers of, of disadvantage and that's really scary because that means the pattern in Australia of if you're born into great disadvantage, really the most poor Australians, then your chances of breaking out of that through your lifetime are remarkably low. And that's not how we like to think of ourselves. We have this myth, we all have it in our heads that you can, with hard work and dedication, you can do anything, you can be anybody, you can break through. And we all know people for whom that's been true. It's not like it never happens. But for the most, those living with the most disadvantage, it doesn't happen very much. Let me give you the stats because they're pretty confronting. They come from the Melbourne Institute. Broadly, 80% of boys born into poverty, into extreme poverty in Australia, 80% will die 
later, a long time later, we hope, in the same economic bracket. That is, they will not have had a time when they broke through. And if that sounds scary, that figure is closer to 90% for girls. So if you were born into the most disadvantaged Australia, you're going to die in the most disadvantaged Australia overwhelmingly. And that means you never got the chance to break out. And that chance starts with preschool, which is why I talk about it. Those statistics that you just gave us are horrific and I'm not quite, you've thrown me, but I guess in your essay, you note that boomers have ended up being a very wealthy generation. And we often hear about intergenerational wealth and what the boomers will pass down. Yeah. But also the other side of that is intergenerational poverty. And I think that that's what you've been discussing with those Mm. horrific stats. And one of the other things that I took from your essay is the idea that disadvantage and poverty comes with loneliness and isolation. Now, after COVID or or during our current COVID normal, isolation and loneliness now have different meanings. We've all had a different experience. Yeah. It's early to be asking you this question, but in terms of poverty and intergenerational poverty, what do you think COVID has done? So I'm about to give you a really annoying answer. I think if you were in the poorest of Australia, it's possible that 2020 was your best ever year, that things went better for you in 2020 than ever before. Let me tell you why I'd say something so outrageous. The key thing is the lift in what was called the New Start rate, which was the job seeker rate. Lifting that up to a much higher level so that it matched job keeper was the single biggest increase in income lots of Australians have ever had in their life. And they had it for 12 months and it lifted. You can, people argue about the stats, but it lifted somewhere north of 600,000 Australians out of poverty. So that tells you that we can make a big difference if we choose to. The second thing, and this is even more outrageous, is that we only have preliminary data on schooling outcomes from 2020. And there's going to be lots of arguments about the evidence. So are all of those caveats. The evidence we have suggests that children in the most disadvantaged communities at least match their prior performance and in many cases exceeded. Not true across the whole core, however, but true for those groups. But nonetheless, I think there are, the lessons out of COVID aren't going to be the obvious ones. The key one is government can change the outcome for a lot of Australians if it chooses to, and, and we did collectively do that. The second one is that our schooling system, which many argue fails the most disadvantaged, looks a lot different when you change the mode of delivery and the way teaching operates, and there's got to be lessons in that. There's a whole set of other initiatives around COVID that were really fascinating, and again, we need time to process them, but they shouldn't be forgotten. We got every homeless person off the streets of our capital cities, and we got them into safe and secure accommodation. We can do it in COVID, we can do it any other time. We should work out why and what that meant and how we might learn from that. We provided free childcare, sometimes to whole communities, sometimes particularly to essential workers. And we provided, although we didn't call it a universal basic income, we provided something that started to look awfully like that called JobKeeper. And in JobKeeper... We paid people to stay in jobs rather than paid them for being unemployed. That makes sense. We paid people to stay in employment and we paid employers to keep people. And that changed 
our whole economy, our ability to recover, the outcome for families all across the country, not for everyone because JobKeeper wasn't available to everyone, as we famously know. Uh, if you work in universities, you didn't miss that the casinos got JobKeeper, universities did not. Nonetheless, for the Australians who did get it, it was profoundly important and it was a form of guaranteed universal income. So the COVID story is a much more interesting story and a much less bleak story than you might anticipate. It is fascinating to hear those reflections. I work on another podcast called The Briefing and we chatted to a a guy early in COVID who had been homeless and he didn't want to share his name with us, but he'd been homeless before and had been literally moved into the Sofitel. And he was suddenly receiving more income than he ever had before to support himself through the government. He was living in a hotel and he was changing his life around. He said, I've never had access to internet ongoing and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to sort myself out because I've got time, I've got opportunity. And I remember him saying to us, I hope this thing lasts, which was perhaps a little bit dark, but it was a life-changing moment for him. And I do want to get to some of the fascinating solutions that you offer up in your book. But before that, I wanted to ask a little bit about the politics of those changes in COVID, because all of those things you just mentioned, you know, the the equivalent of a universal basic income, support for people who were homeless that's never been there before, literally putting people into accommodation that was secure and at least medium term and providing free childcare. None of those things are things you would generally expect from a conservative government. Do you think that a less conservative government would have got away with it? Well, it's a fascinating question and it's interesting that we have conservative governments in the UK and Australia and they, they rent to very similar means. It's almost like ideology stopped mattering. Whereas in America you saw very different outcomes and fights over whether they should be providing extra support and security and much more limited um, support for people in distress and much more differential depending on where you lived in America. So we almost have a case study. We could run through the, the comparison. But you're right, the politics are fascinating to Miller. It's just interesting that you wouldn't have expected any of these initiatives necessarily from this from the conservative government. I make the point in the book that Australians we blame politicians in a sense for poverty, but Australians actually have to take responsibility collectively for those outcomes. Almost every Australian federal election is a referendum on how much taxation we're willing to pay. That's all it comes down to in the end. And most times the same side wins. For 60 of the last 90 years, the same side of politics has been in government, not continuously, but through that time. And that's a very dominant pattern, which tells you that most Australians don't want to pay a lot of tax. They certainly don't want to pay more tax than they currently pay. It doesn't matter what the current rate is. They don't want to pay a cent more, even though that rate has moved over time. And so conservative governments are constrained. They've got an electorate that voted them not to spend lots more money. So telling them that they have to spend money was a difficult moment and an even more difficult moment for them as they went through just a decade ago the global financial crisis and deeply critical of a Labor government which spent money to keep us out of recession successfully. And yet that ideology just got put aside almost instantly. The speed of the response was great, in part because Treasury is the point of continuity through here. It was Treasury that argued for spending in 2009 and it was Treasury that argued for spending in 2020 and for the same reasons. So 
leaving aside political ideology, the economists' models now tell them that this is when you put money into the economy, this is when you pump prime. It works. Moving from economic theories to philosophy, in your essay on life's lottery, you pose a philosophical question. How much suffering are we willing to accept to keep social harmony? Now, that may or may not relate to how much our governments are willing to spend in times of crises, but I'm interested in your personal reflections on what we each need to invest in or give up or share to alleviate the suffering we see. In the first go, I mean, I wrote a first version of this and it was entirely about the philosophy of what is our moral obligation to others and it started with Singer and then it went to John Rawls and from John Rawls to eventually to Amartya Sen and from Amartya Sen to Martha Nussbaum and, and I gave it to the publisher and she took me out to for a cup of tea, which should have told me that it wasn't going to go well. She only did that because she had something she needed to tell me. And what she needed to tell me was, you may have found this interesting, but I'm not sure anybody else will. I did. Can I take five guesses that that publisher was Louise Adler? An excellent shot in the dark. Louise does a very fine Sunday afternoon cup of tea, which is her way of saying, now we're going to think again about this essay. So the, the second version, the version that was published, has a discussion at the front end of Peter Singer's view of moral obligation, which I've come to, but doesn't, I didn't go there on the other stuff, which I found really interesting and would have liked to have, but you know, I, I recognise a publisher has to have a book that other people want to read. And that's fair enough. And Louise is a very fine publisher, so she knew exactly what she was doing. Peter Singer says that if you were walking along the street and you saw a small child drowning in a pond, your unambiguous moral obligation is to jump in and save the child. And you do that even though you're going to wreck your clothes and it's inconvenient. And his point being that the cost of saving the child is trivial to you and life and death for the child. And he says you have no moral, you know, no choice here. This is an absolute moral, this is part of being human. You must do this. And then he goes on to say, And it's true at an individual level, it's true at a social level. If they're in your society, there are people who are in dire need and the cost to you of helping them is modest, then you have an obligation. It's not an absolute obligation. If the cost to you becomes high, if you have to put your own life into danger, if you have to deceive or do other things that are unethical, then you have to think again. But if the cost is straightforward, you have a moral obligation to get in there and help that child or help your society. And that's, Astrid, that's the point, the moral point that starts the, the conversation here. So you know, that goes to this political question about how much taxation are you willing to pay? Because in our society, in a matter of practicality, that's one way you can actually help people just by paying your tax and paying it willingly because it's being used to help others. You put forward some really interesting but brief proposals around what could be done and what's being done in other parts of the world. Can you share a couple of those with us? Sure. And I'll start with the probably the trivial ones and move to the major one. The, the trivial ones, they're not trivial, it's wrong language. I'll start, sorry. Um, they're, they're probably less significant overall. They're all worth doing in their own right. And they are around social impact bonds, social enterprises, not-for-profits, funding new sorts of organisations that want to make a difference in society and use a commercial model to do it. And we've got lots of really interesting examples in Australia, often very low-key cafes that are also employment training centres. But I guess much of the book 
is talking about something different, which is called collective impact. And collective impact is communities that have decided to try and do something about a profound problem inside that community. And I've, I've got two detailed examples in the book. First one is called Our Place here in Victoria, and it uses primary schools in communities facing disadvantage as a locus to bring together not just support for the children in the school, but for their parents. So you bring in the local health community worker, you bring in the after-school care, you actually bring in employment services often for the parents. It uses the, it tries to create a community around the school that extends far beyond just the curriculum and is really dedicated to making the community a more viable and vibrant community. Uh, this started in Doveton, the outskirts of Melbourne, and there are now 10 of them across Victoria and it's doing really interesting work. Why it's interesting is because it's community-led. It says to government, we really want your help and support, but we don't want you to come in and tell us what to do and we don't want you to set up your health service separate from what we're trying to do. We actually need it integrated into a single arrangement, which means you're saying to government, you need to be part of this, but you're not in control. But the second and I think really interesting example of collective impact is in Burke in Western New South Wales. Burke is a, a, a town with lots of community issues, in particular around Indigenous incarceration, highest rates of youth incarceration in New South Wales, which is saying something. And a group of a group of people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, but led Indigenous-led in Burke decided to do something about this. And they went for what's called a justice renewal project, uh, sorry, a Justice Reinvest project. Justice Reinvest comes out of America. It's the idea that you do a deal effectively with the state. If we can bring down crime in this community, you, the state, will agree to reinvest the money you don't have to spend on police and jails into the community. So we're not asking you to spend more money, we're asking you to redirect. And in Burke, that's what they set out to do. They started working, set up youth groups to work with, they started working with the schools. They did some really immensely practical things. One of them is that lots of young people, and particularly young men, young Indigenous men, were getting into trouble with the police because they were driving without driver's licence. And if you do that, lots of times you get caught, lots of times you end up into the juvenile justice system for driving without a licence. And you have to say, well, why would, why would they keep driving without a licence? The answer turns out to be worryingly simple. They didn't have a birth certificate. There's 300,000 Indigenous Australians who don't have a birth certificate. So it's possible to fund Aboriginally-led organisations that go into community and organise birth certificates, and that's happening right now in programs called Pathfinders. So there's been a KPMG review which says that Burke is on track to save around $10 million through all of these initiatives. And the state has committed to reinvesting that $10 million back into Burke into new facilities and libraries and things that people need and they can use when you remove some of the other constraints. It's a brilliant example of collective impact and it's a model we're hoping to see taken to other parts of Australia. Absolutely. Glenn, thank you for reminding us of the power of community and the ability of communities to look around and understand their own situation and their own issues and come up with solutions that work for that place, for that community, as opposed to, you know, kind of top-down strategies or documents that may or may not help on the ground with all the practicalities. And also, Glenn, 
thank you for writing On Life's Lottery. It is a beautifully short and eloquent exploration of perhaps how we can all think about Australia and poverty and the advantages that we may have. And finally, Glyn, thank you for chatting with us today. It's been a real pleasure and thank you, Jamila. I enjoyed it immensely. Let me say all power to the podcast. I think opportunities like this, which provide alternative media and different ways of communicating and different communities of interest are really important and I just really want to commend you for what you're doing. Thank you so much for being with us today. That is the final episode of Anonymous Was a Woman for season three. But never fear, never fear, friends. We will not be outside of your ears for very long. We will be back with you in about a month or so's time with a whole new season of literary goodies for your ears. Astrid and I would like to thank Future Women. We'd like to thank Hachette Publishing and Bad Producer Productions, without all of whom this would not be possible. And while we still have you, now is the time, if you haven't listened to me all season, to go and rate and review Anonymous Was a Woman, five stars please, and lovely comments, and subscribe because that is how you can make sure that you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, go tell a mate about how great we are. We'll be back with you as soon as we possibly can be. Bye.